I got really good at taking care of prostate cancer and oh. lymphoma and could take care of the physical symptoms, but realized the quality of life was really determined by how people felt and addressing their existential. And I had no good tools for that. And that's when I learned about psychedelics. And, and can you can you pinpoint, was it something that you read or a paper or a conversation that kind of opened your mind to the psychedelic yeah, so, sort of? So I knew this existential dread crisis, this like, why am I here question was very real in oncology. And we never talked about it, right? You come in, what are your symptoms, you chemo, but this is this underlying thing. Yeah. But we never actually name it. And then I read the paper that says, this is a drug that deals with that. And I was like, somebody actually is naming the thing that I see every day and then purports to study it and do something about it. There's not a single oncology paper that was about that. Interesting. And so in my world, it's like, wow, this is like my closet interest for 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> this is what I've been reading and studying about. Yeah. Welcome to The Trip Report, a podcast from Beckley Waves, a psychedelic venture studio. I'm Zach Hegney. Like many, I believe we're in the midst of a watershed moment with the reemergence of psychedelics into the mainstream culture, but the future is far from certain. My goal with the trip report is to help listeners develop a deep understanding of the dynamics, complexities, and broader implications of this new paradigm. In these conversations, I dive deep into the business, science, policy, and culture of psychedelics with a wide range of guests, including scientists, entrepreneurs, investors, clinicians, and others. Check out thetripreport.com to sign up for our newsletter. And if you want to learn more about Beckley Waves, visit beckleywaves.com. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Manish Agrawal. Manish is the founder and CEO of Sunstone Therapies and co-director of clinical research at Aquilino Cancer Center in Rockville, Maryland. Manish studied engineering at Auburn University and graduated from the University of Alabama School of Medicine. He did his medical residency at Georgetown University, where he also earned a master's in philosophy. After Georgetown, he did a fellowship at the National Institutes of Health. He then went on to a more than 20-year career as an oncologist. In 2017, Manish met Roland Griffiths from Johns Hopkins University, and his interest in psychedelic research was piqued. This led to the founding of Sunstone Therapies. Sunstone serves as an independent research site, carrying out clinical trials for psychedelic drug developers like MAPS, USONA, and Compass Pathways, as well as their own investigator-initiated trials. They also train therapists. In this episode, we discuss Manish's career as an oncologist and researcher, his time at the NIH, the role his philosophy training has played in his life as a physician, the origin story of Sunstone Therapies, the similarities and differences between delivering cancer treatment and delivering psychedelic medicine, preparing for FDA approval, and more. It was a real pleasure to spend some time with Dr. Agarwal and learn more about Sunstone Therapies. As you'll tell from my enthusiasm in this conversation, I'm really fond of Sunstone's model because it tracks with my own experience. My first job out of college was as a study coordinator at an independent clinical research site that was very similar to Sunstone. Instead of psychedelics, however, we conducted trials on new HIV medications. If you enjoy this conversation, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and head over to thetripreport.com to sign up to receive the newsletter and podcast directly to your inbox. And without further ado, I bring you Dr. Manish Agarwal. Like I was saying, I, I worked as a, a clinical study coordinator. 
that actually that experience over four or five years of working in between PI sponsors auditors I saw how the sausage was made and I thought you know the unique thing about the psychedelic field is that the need right now is is in the clinical trial infrastructure and I wrote about I was looking for it this morning in, in a post I wrote probably a couple of years ago just about my experience in in running clinical trials or I should say managing clinical trials I wasn't obviously a PI but it just seemed like a natural starting place for a clinical infrastructure. And that strikes me as what you're, exactly. you're doing with Sunstone. It's like dead Th- that's right, yeah. Pre-approval, this is our lab. We're doing a bunch of studies and getting ready for commercialization. Yeah. And that's exactly the model. And so I'm, I'm glad you get it. Yeah, because yeah. so right now, for example, we have five studies. Mm-hmm. We have an LSD study open. Yeah. We have psilocybin, LSD and anxiety, psilocybin and depression. Yeah an MDMA and PTSD, an MDMA and adjustment disorder for couples, and a psilocybin and cancer patients. And so what that helping us figure out is how do you treat multiple people with multiple compounds, with multiple indications yeah. in the clinic. Yeah. And so we're having to solve that in real time yeah. and pressure test at the same time, you know, doing research and learning. Right. And there's just no other way to to figure that out. Yeah. Well, you, you mentioned you're, you're doing all these trials and for, for listeners who may not be as familiar with the, the clinic. So you, you are contracted by the sponsors of these trials, correct? To be a site in their in mostly phase two and three programs. So we do a mix. So okay. we do IITs. So investigated initiated studies. So we have two studies that we've written. So I've written. Or oh, interesting. Written, and then we've written and then three sponsored. So we always do a mix because like our IITs were trying to learn how to do therapy best. Yeah. And so our two studies are novel therapeutic ways to approach psychedelic therapy. Oh, interesting. And so does that mean changing like the therapeutic component of, of the, of the, you know, that's right. Assisted therapy. Interesting. And so, yeah. So one study is a a group study. Uh And so we treat four people at a time simultaneously, Um, but we do group preparation, group integration. They take the medicine together at, but so we have our setup is we have four rooms right next to each other. Mm-hmm. And so they actually, you know, meet, they have group preparation. This was around cancer. And mm-hmm. so what cancer diagnosis do you have? Why do you want to do this study? Connect, get them ready, and then they take the medicine together. They have the experience together, which is very powerful. Interesting. And then which compound is this? Psilocybin. So we've done one study already. And is that one of the investigator-initiated yeah. trials? This is the investigator-initiated one. And the other one we're doing that's also investigator-initiated is with a, f- a cancer patient and a family member. And they both take MDMA together in the same room with two therapists. So again, we're sort of pushing the bounds of like two therapists to one patient. And so those are IITs. Yeah. So we did that one because we think the caregiver is really important yeah. in all these symptoms. And so... We wanted to do that, and the group is important. And so the sponsor ones tend to be a lot more conservative, like two therapists. They're trying to get FDA approval, mm-hmm. and so we do a mix. Interesting. Can you give me a little bit of an origin story about the that Dyad program? Was there inspiration that inspired that, or what's the backstory of how that program yeah, I mean, so came that to be? comes from my clinical experience. You know, being an oncologist for 20 years, saw thousands of patients, yeah. and you know, caregiver burnout and caregiver support is a huge deal. And so the cancer doesn't just affect the person, it affects the whole system. So we would see people pass, but then the family member is still there and the pain that they carry. And so we saw that uh, if people can work and process some of that grief while the person is alive and have, 
you know, end that's together, it's much, mm-hmm. it's much better. And that was the impetus for that. Interesting. So can you tell us a little bit about your just professional background, sort of start from wherever you, you want to pick that up, you know, <laughs> training or upbringing or, you know, yeah. just what, what's, what's been your sort of professional research, scientific career? Yeah, that's probably, let me see where I should start. I won't start from my prior life, so let's start in college. <laughs> um, college is good as any. So uh, when I was in freshman, I wanted to study philosophy. And my father, like a good Indian father, said, I didn't come to this country for you to be a philosopher. <laughs> so uh, I ended up studying electrical engineering. And so I'm an electrical engineer, and my senior year is like, I'm good at this, but I don't really love it. Yeah. So then I said, maybe... I wanted something more with humans. And so I was thinking about biomedical. Then somebody said, well, just do medicine and you can do both. And so I ended up going to, decided to go to medical school my senior year. I worked for a compact computers for a year and then went to medical school. And then after medical school, did my residency at Georgetown. And that's where I took a year off and did get my master's in philosophy. So I've always had this interest in sort of who we are, what makes us tick. And What's our existence? What is like the fundamental questions? What can I ask you? What sort of which branch of philosophy did you spend most of your time? Epistemology was my favorite one. So like how we know what we know. Yeah. And so really got to study in medicine. Um, a great book is uh, Paul Starr's Social Transformation of Medicine. Okay. And you see, I mean, American medicine was like on par with the shamans. <clears throat> and I don't mean like they used to use leeches and things <clears throat> like that. And I don't mean shaman. It's a uh, there's another term, but there were, uh, but then science and antibiotics came on and then yeah. it became, but you could see the AMA forming and the yeah. whole interrelation. But then, you know, in medicine, for example, in epistemology, we studied like, you know, men have the normal, you know, kidney clearance and then you correct it for a woman. Right. So right. like the man is a standard or like men have the typical chest pain, but right. women have atypical, like somehow. Yeah. And so you start seeing how, even the questions we ask right. inform practice. the practice or even what we investigate. So like, for example, there's a lot more money for breast cancer research right. than there is for malaria. So you get to see that even the meta questions are there. And so yeah. Yeah. that book was powerful. And then um, Thomas Kuhn's uh, yeah. Structure of Scientific Revolutions. Yeah. And then like, what's underneath all that? Yeah. Like, yeah. what am I already thinking about before I'm thinking about anything? Right. Yeah. So that's the thing that... Cool. That's the part I love to buy. Right, so we'll give you a whole podcast. <laughs> well, I could yeah, do that I, all. I, I, cut, I cut off your, your professional journey. <laughs> no, that's, I could. If you said, that's, "What do I love?" That's what I love. Is that's like thinking about that. And what are my assumptions that I don't even aware of? I use is or, or that in yeah. a certain way. You know, the language game Wittgenstein. Like I'm already in the language game. Yeah. And so to me, medicine was this laboratory of like yeah. you get to see human existence, not sort of in theory, but like. What is death like? What's right. going on? And so I got a master's in, a, in philosophy and ethics and at bioethics then. And then I went to the NIH and uh, ended up going into oncology because I was really interested in people that, I don't know, somehow people with coughs and colds weren't that interesting to me, but having really, having real conversations. And so I ended up uh, doing a fellowship at the NIH and actually did a second fellowship in bioethics with Ezekiel Emanuel who's a bioethicist and then I ended up staying on faculty there and did research and, Mm -hmm. but then I started getting bored. I was like, Mm -hmm. I mean, I got to write this thing. And then like, there's 20 editorial things back and forth and nobody's going to read this article. And I missed 
having more. Were you, was that clinical research or was clinical that, research? Yeah. I was doing translational stuff. I was with, in a lab with uh, Tito Fojo doing drug resistance, and so we were testing it. And then, but I really loved. I didn't think I, I was going to be an academic person for sure. And then, but I loved patient care. And then I ended up going to practice and join this large group in Maryland mm-hmm. and. And really enjoyed taking care of patients and had so many meaningful conversations so in oncology. In oncology. Yeah. And I did that for 18 years. And then as things progressed, I got really good at taking care of prostate cancer and uh-huh. lymphoma and could take care of the physical symptoms, but realized the quality of life was really determined by how people felt yeah. and addressing their existential. And I had no good tools for that. And that's when I learned about psychedelics. I reached out to Mary Casabon and Roland. I was like, I mentioned this and I would call them and then Mary called me back and said, Roland says you've called a few times. What is it that you want? I'm like, I'm an oncologist. I really want to know how to do this. So I visited them and saw everyone. When, when was this? What, what time uh, period? It was probably like four years ago, five years okay. ago. Pretty new. And, and can, you, can you pinpoint, was it something that you read or a paper or a conversation that kind of opened your mind to the psychedelic yeah, so sort of? I think for me it was like, so I knew this existential dread crisis, this, like, why am I here question was very real in oncology. And we never talked about it. Yeah. Right? You come in, what are your symptoms? Give me chemo. But this is this underlying thing. Yeah. But we never actually name it. And then I read the paper that says, this is a drug that deals with that. Yeah. Like, oh, my gosh. This is the paper from... From Roland. From Roland. And... Yeah. And it was like, somebody actually is naming the thing that I see every day and then purports to study it and do something about it. I mean... Death-related anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. Like, there's not a single oncology paper that was about that. Interesting. And so in my world, it was like, wow. And then I was like, this is like my closet interest for 20 years. (laughs) (laughs) Because what I've been reading and studying about. Yeah. And so um, I went up and visited, and Roland's like, this is really hard. I don't know if you can do this. And so so we're going to do it. And... So we're in the standalone cancer center, and on the third floor, there was this open space, mm-hmm. concrete shell, and I talked to Kim Roddy, who's our, one of our other founders, and she said, we should just build out a space and do a trial there. And so we wrote a study, got it through the FDA and IRB, and opened that in 2019, closed in 20. We just published a couple of months ago in JAM Oncology, okay. um, those findings, and then built out this purpose-built space to treat, uh, to use psychedelic therapy for or in doing research in it. So it was purpose-built for that. So that's Sunstone Therapy, is that yeah. the facility that you created? And is there is it affiliated with Johns Hopkins or...? Yeah, so it's the... Um, so Sunstone... So uh, the facility is actually the Aquilino Cancer Center. <clears throat> and then within that is a space that Sunstone runs. Got it. Okay. And... Uh, and, and Aquilino is a is that a, like a private practice? An independent cancer center. Okay. So the Adventist Hospital System is there. Mm-hmm. And there's another private oncology group, which is I was a part of before I joined Sunstone. And so it's an independent cancer center, I would say. So we first did the study and, you know, the more we did it and I saw the patients change and I said, I've got to do this full time. So I left my practice oh, wow. to do this full time. Yeah. How big was that first study or what was the... Just 30 people. 30 people. Yeah. And was that open label? It's open label, civil side. And it was the first group study that was done. So your first study that you ran was a group study. A group study. In cancer patients. In cancer patients. A specific type of cancer? No, we had any stage of cancer. Uh-huh. So that was different than previous studies because mostly they did advanced. And I thought that early stage, even that are cured, still have 
a lot of issues, survivorship that never really get addressed. And so we had any stage, and then you had to have MDD, major depressive disorder, mm -hmm. as defined by clinical criteria, and HAMD greater than 18 to mm -hmm. get it. Got it. Yeah. Interesting. So that's a, that was an investigator-initiated trial. You wrote the protocol, therapeutic support, group elements of it. Right. Interesting. Yeah, so I, I mean... We were on a mission at that point, yeah. you know, and so I recruited Bill. So now Bill works full-time with Sunstone. You're talking about Bill Richards, right? Yeah, Bill right? Richards, yeah. and Brian, and then a therapist. We, So I had, like, Bill. Yeah. <laughs> it's good. Yeah, it's a good so person to have. It wasn't like, I've got the therapeutic approach. Right, right. And then... Um, so you worked with Bill to create the sort of the therapeutic component or the design the study is? Um, how, I don't you... think he was involved in the design of the study or yeah. even the, the group mm -hmm. aspect per se, but really how to be with patients and yeah. hold them. And yeah. that I think was really important. And he trained our therapists around that. Oh, wow. As you say, we're talking about Bill Richards, yes. kind of legendary person in the field. That's right. He was, was it, was it, um, I'm blanking on the name of the facility that was in Maryland in the sixties and seventies. Yes. Right. That. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He, he's like, he, in fact, I was talking to him yesterday. He's like, is he here? Is he at the conference? Here, yeah. Oh, cool. In fact, unfortunately he just fell and just look at him. Oh, I was no. just flying back today. Oh, but, but he was telling me yesterday, he's like in 1977, you could remember like Brian, his son was three closing up his office mm -hmm. in Maryland and closing everything down. Yeah. And now this like renaissance yeah. and he's like, I can't believe what's happening. Yeah. Like what a, what a reverse yeah, course, right? The reverse. That's like, incredible. Sunstone is the thing I've been wanting to open to come back yeah. to life. What's the relationship between an investigator initiated trial and the manufacturer of the, of the compound itself? I know that, you know, Compass obviously has relationships with researchers. Yeah. USON is another manufacturer. Yeah. Maybe there's others. That, but I'm just curious from my yeah. own sort of understanding, like, what is that? How does that look like? And, and maybe if, with an example of this particular trial or another one. Yeah, so like um, investigator-initiated studies, it's I'm responsible. Mm -hmm. And so basically a manufacturer, I get the compound from them, but everything else is on me. Submitted to the FDA, IRB, the data. Yeah. They're sort of at hands-off. And so, for example, with MAPS, the study with dyads, the cancer couple, that's yeah. an investigator-initiated study. So I get the MDMA from them, but it's yeah. all on me how Got I do it. it. Whereas the PTSD, the expanded access, that's MAPS supported. Yeah. They have tons of oversight. Their data, right? They're collecting the data, or, right. or I should say their data propriety. Like our first group study... Uh, Compass provided the psilocybin. Mm -hmm. and the second one, USONA is. Got it. Got it. And so we're somewhat manufacturer agnostic yeah. and compound agnostic. That's that's really cool. Because we didn't want to, we need to be able to come up with our own delivery. Right. So how many trials do you have running right now? Five. Five. And we're about to open two more. And what kind of scale of operation is that? Is that 10 people? Is that 100 people? What? What? How, how many um, people are... We have about... 20 full-time okay and probably another 15 20 contractors got it and that is study coordinators so we have therapists like, we have four study coordinators a data person study manager mm -hmm. research manager then we have a large group of core therapists like six mm -hmm. um and then we have a bunch of what we call consultant therapists that are part of the sunstone system that we yep. trained and they come in got it and, and there's a 
business person and the yeah. office manager and all of those pieces. And is Sunstone a, a nonprofit, a for-profit? What, what's the business structure? It's a for-profit. It is. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a company that's really based on delivery. Yeah. And it's 100% thinking the molecule is fine, but how it gets out yeah. is really important. Yeah. And figuring how that happens is what Sunstone is doing. I'm I'm going to reel in my enthusiasm right now, but when we talk about care delivery or infrastructure like that that's a pretty broad yeah. term in this kind of field right yeah. and i think if you look back over the last few years i think by some estimates it's been like 90 or 95 percent of the capital investment has gone into drug development right new molecules you know next generation yeah. kind of drugs but you know the elephant in the room as i see it is a bit of it's an infrastructure sort of issue, like the, the bottleneck, so to speak, and, and the capacity to deliver quality, safe, effective care is contingent upon clinical infrastructure, therapist, physician sort of training. Like at the same time that there's this kind of marching towards FDA approval, and then as we just kind of said, all of the care delivery infrastructure needs that need to be there in time for that. There is a cultural, you know, Cambrian explosion of underground use policy reforms that are sort of creating potential avenues for outside of the medical kind of treatment. Yeah. Share what you're thinking on this like care delivery infrastructure piece, because yeah. you are, you know, as, as I said before, like the way that you're approaching this, I have an affinity for because I've worked in this field before and it strikes me as very obvious that this model is what's needed to facilitate the medical paradigm yeah. and all of the things that are needed there, reimbursement, therapist training, yeah. appropriate sort of clinical infrastructure, yeah. drug, you know, yeah. pharmacy, like all of that, REMS, you know, risk, yeah. all that's going to be super challenging and yes. do with that what you will. <laughs> no, I mean, I think you're spot on. And I think the field has not really tackled it well. There's been this hype around the medicine yeah. and but this is, I think, is going to be the challenge to access. Right. Because everybody's focused on getting this drug over the line. Right. But that's just when it's going to start. And so I'll say it from a couple of different meanderings as well. I tell people it's much more analogous to oncology than it is to mental health. Interesting. When somebody gets cancer, they come and see, we do preparation. Yeah. Like, are you appropriate for treatment? Look at your pathology. Look at your radiology. Yeah. Then I prepare you for chemo. Yeah. Tell you about the side effects. You get chemo education. Then you come in for chemo right, and right, there's a nurse right. with you the whole time yeah. while you're getting chemo then you come back for toxicity management and how it went and assess and then i figure out what to do yeah. and so it's a multi-disciplinary multi-modality care we have lots of oral oncology drugs we have to do rems i have nurses and vitals and labs mental health practitioners they prescribe a medication or do therapy for an hour yeah. Yeah. that's like a different world yeah and so I recognize all the things that have to go into place in yeah. order to deliver that care well. And it's really relevant, I think, in this field, because I think that the way that people have the most transformative experience is because if they really trust yeah. where they're going. Right. And so that trust begins from the moment they call you mm -hmm. to how you receive them. Mm -hmm. So we train our person that receives a call. 
the nurse, the whole thing, because their unconscious, their psyche is looking for trust. Yeah. And yeah. then when they're in that space, they can go deeper because of that. Mm -hmm. And then you can help them with that. And so the whole system has to be very patient focused and yeah. patient experience. And to coordinate multiple things is not an easy task. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the key for it to be safe and effective. Yeah. And it's not easy to do that. And I don't know that it's a medical versus non-medical. I think you have to go through these same issues, even the legalized route. Like yeah. Yeah. as we're treating more people, there's a lot of complex patients and people that need therapy out yeah. there. And to really know who it's appropriate for, who's not, we're not getting to that level of sophistication yet. Mm -hmm. So like I'm starting to see is like personality disorders probably don't do as well as people that don't have as that. Yeah. And so are we going to be able to screen the right Screening, person yeah. or our thought is like, if you come in, maybe you need to do some therapy and meditation for a while yeah. and then you're appropriate rather than just sort of put you in. Yeah. And I mean, you know this cause my favorite thing I always say is like, if MDMA cured PTSD, then everybody went to a rave, wouldn't have trauma anymore. Right. And we don't see that. Yeah. Right. And so I think eventually the shift is going to be like how you get this care. Yeah. That's interesting. That analogy, I've thought of it as more akin to surgery. Mm -hmm. You know, is and and so this is a yeah. good framework. You know, very similar to the way you said it. You you go in and you kind of get evaluated, and you're like, oh, yep, we you have torn ACL or whatever the case is, and see, and then you have the procedure itself. So I I, I wrote a piece a few years ago called Psychedelic Procedures, and then the follow-on care yep. will be you know akin to physical therapy. That's right. You know, for example, and it, it sounds like you're doing all of that sort of within Sunstone. Right. Is that just so like if you yeah, if you want to use your analogy, it's like. How do you run a great surgery center yeah. that really takes care of people where they feel cared for? And so that has to get sorted out because it's not about, I'm a really good surgeon and so yeah. I can do that and I've got a scalpel. Over. It's all the stuff before and after. Before and, after right? and then really, how's it going to be financially sustainable? So we want it to be for profit because I didn't want to be dependent on always asking, asking. And for me, it's about access. If something isn't like financially sustainable, people yeah. are not going to get to it that don't have... So like the people that come to us, they're everyday people yeah. that live in the suburbs of Rockville or Maryland or Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. and they're going to come to that kind of setting and they're not going to pay out of pocket. They're not going to go to the underground. So this kind of leads me to this next line of thinking. I, I want to see if I can flesh out. So I, I've had this theory that perhaps the best healthcare anywhere in the world is in clinical trials, mm -hmm. right? And, and it, it's not because of the treatment that's being evaluated itself, but the level of engagement and sort of support that a trial demands, right? You know, you, you think about what the, the healthcare system, like yeah. what, what's called compliance, you know, yeah. is like a big issue. But in a, in a clinical trial, like the incentives are totally in line to make sure that that patient is sort of adhering yeah. to clinic, you know, going through the, the, you know what I mean? And so it feels like, and I, I don't know, have any data on this. I wonder if it's been studied, like kind of the difference between I know there's like a, a drop off because the clinical data from, you know, phase three trials, yeah. for example, and then in the real world, yeah. there's a, a, a delta there, but that could be just like the patient population is much more yeah. broad. But I also think like there's an element because I, again, I did this as yeah. a study coordinator. I saw right. like the level of engagement that I had to sort of yeah. interact with people. You know, it was more, it was, it was a yes to like make sure that they're taking the medications and adhering to the protocol, but there's a human con, it necessitated human contact that I feel is missing writ large in the healthcare system yeah. or challenging to sort of find. So I'm curious, again, take that with 
you know, how, how you will, I, I guess the question is like, how do you then maintain the standards of, you know, of, of a clinical trial post-approval? What does that transformation look like? How do you... I think for us, we're doing clinical trials with that mind. Mm-hmm. We're going in intentionally, I think, which is different than most academic places. Like they're trying to do research to gather information. Right. And right. so our two values at Sunset the Core are love and rigor. And so I think what you're saying is clinical trials have a lot of rigor. Yeah. They have structure right. and there's procedures and all of those. And I think generally there is a fall off when the drugs get approved. I think some of that's a rigor, but I also think, you know, in clinical trials, we're so careful not to have adverse events. So we don't enroll people that, right. so it's very clean. So it's never left up to the investigator or anybody right. to let somebody, there's always some judgment, but it's pretty clean. Yeah. And in the real world, you have older people and yeah. younger people and yeah. comorbidities and like the real world. Yeah. And so unfortunately in clinical trials, I have to say no to a lot of people that right. probably could benefit for like, like you have to have completed two treatments for PTSD before you could go on the study. Right. This person did EMDR. They did eight sessions. Yeah. 12 is considered full. So this person couldn't get MDMA because they didn't do four more, more, se- more sessions. So, yeah. I mean, that's like the both of it. But I think that's what we're trying to do is like have that rigor of that, but the love piece. And so, for example, I think the model moving forward isn't just the therapist and the person. You're always going to have the CRC equivalent as a navigator. And so somebody, CRC, research. coordinator in the research, but in standard care, yeah. we have something like a navigator that oh, would yeah. be like yeah. the point of contact that's yeah. making sure the whole process is running smoothly. And we sort of map out the patient journey of like what they go through, what are the touch points, when are the anxious and when the human should come in. And so I think you're right. Clinical trials probably gets more. So I think it's a patient population. Yeah. And second, there's just no room for mistakes, yeah, right? Everything right. is doubled and triple checked. Yeah. yeah, interesting. And so you have five trials going on right now, two more coming on. What's been like a, a standout learning challenge? Like what, what has kind of been a, you know, a, a thing that you keep coming back to that you didn't know or understand before you started this kind of part of your professional journey that, that you do now? So I'm both like a believer and not believer of psychedelics. <laughs> I think they're probably the most powerful tool we have to access psychic material, yeah. but they're not magic. Right. And I think they're overpromised. Yeah. And at the same time, I still am amazed at the transformation that I see. Quite the paradox, isn't it? it is. like, I, th- I think you captured that really well. And it is like, a, it's a tough thing to try to yeah, articulate, so like, but you did that really well. And so I struggle with even saying, because if people want to do it, but then God, I see these lives change that I didn't see in 20 years in medicine. Um, and at the same time, it's not a magic bullet. So that, like, it just deepens every day, that seeing, the changing is like, if I wasn't there, I wouldn't believe this person from the military that lived with a gun in his mouth on a regular basis is like a different person, Um, gives me a hug and like, you just wouldn't believe it. And then I think people underappreciate, it's one thing to treat, as most of these places, treat one or two or three people a week, Mm -hmm. four, but if you're treating 15 10 a week, it's way more complex. Mm -hmm. And I think there's underappreciation on the burden on the system Mm -hmm. of what it takes for the people to take care of them. And are you meaning like the therapists, the clinicians, the the whole system? Yeah. And so like, you know, something we're pretty, we don't sort of separate out the clinician, not clinicians. We all sort of work together, Mm -hmm. but like for expand, 
uh, we're treating a lot of people with MDMA for PTSD. Mm-hmm. And most of these people have exhausted other treatment options, mm-hmm. Depressant, you know, antidepressant, everything. And so they're coming as like their last hope. Yeah. And that's a lot of pressure. Mm-hmm. And then we're screening and deciding, wait a minute, this person probably doesn't have enough social support in place that if all this content comes out, it could make things worse. Right. So to say no to them is deeply difficult on yeah, yeah. all the whole system. They, everyone feels that. And I had the, you know, the, the light bulb that switched to me is like, I used to do this all the time in oncology, right. which is like, I don't have any more treatments to offer. But people in mental health, they're not. So people coming to psychedelics aren't because like, you know, I'm a little sad. Let me try a psychedelic. Yeah, it's right, like right. things aren't working. Yeah. And so the toil that it takes on the people that work there mm-hmm. and to move people in in a safe and effective way and screen them mm-hmm. and to say no and the content you're dealing with, it's just a different animal than yeah. like other types of healthcare. Interesting. I know you have many different trials, but what is a... What's the time duration? What's the level of visits? Yeah, I mean, so obviously right now we have more people that can get treated than we have even studies for or space for. So the first process is as as they contact us, we want them to feel not like they're just a number and eventually going to reach out. But it's we go through a process of screening Mm -hmm. and then having that initial call going through those procedures. That's The pre-screen period is fairly long. Mm -hmm. You know, it can be a month of laboratories and EKGs, but yeah. really getting down into their mental health and where they are and their yeah. support. And then they'll come on study and then we'll do a preparation. And so there's usually two or three preparations mm-hmm. and they were really just establishing trust. Yeah. Like, can you trust us? Can you trust the institution? Do you know that we know what we're doing and what to expect? Then there's usually the treatment session mm-hmm. and then follow up afterwards. And really we're pretty close in contact through all, all of that. Mm-hmm. And then depending on the study, like the expanded access, well, there's two more sessions like that. Mm-hmm. And really people don't see those changes until the second and third. Mm-hmm. Cause the first one, people with severe trauma are just yeah. holding on. Right, They're like, right. I think I'm going to try this, but I'm not sure if I can trust yeah. you. And then in a big piece is the aftercare. So even after their study, we can't just sort of throw them out into right, the, like right. you've had this, but how do you continue this? Yeah. And so, we work with community resources, like make sure they have a therapist. What are the other support groups out there? What are the other tools that could be, because it's really the beginning of their healing journey. Right, right. Because we're seeing people two years later now from our initial study in 19, they're still growing and changing. Yeah. We have actually, this is a cool thing that came out of that study. So the study was eight weeks there, but then afterwards people still wanted to meet. So yeah. one of the first, this is the group study, right? This is the group yeah. study, the first cohort. There was this guy from Philly, quiet, and wasn't sure he wanted to do a group thing. But after that, he's like, man, I went to war with these women. I can't stop meeting. Mm-hmm. So he made us form a group oh, wow. for post-treatment. And yeah. it still meets once a month, really? two years later. That's incredible. Betsy Jenkins meets with them. Uh-huh. And what's cool is like they were in different cohorts, but they've come together. So it's about 10 people. And um, it'll be about our talk today, actually. But the changes that are occurring two years later. So in many ways, there's been this focus on the experience itself and what happens immediately afterwards, but the unwinding that goes on, the change in jobs and relationships, the things that people are starting to sort out is quite powerful. That's incredible. The differential between 
let's say somebody who's been in uh, a therapist or a counselor or, or, or in the mental health field yeah. for a certain amount of time, like they're they're well versed. Let's just say ten years. And what does some what is the average sort of clinician therapist? I'm trying to find a word other than training, but what perspective shift is needed? Or to be instilled to like do this kind of work, perhaps compared to what they might have kind of come from. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot and then someone there's not. So I think a really good therapist is able to hold that space and let the unconscious material come up and work with that person and not put their transference, their agenda and things on there. And so in that way, I think it's very similar. But I think it's more intense in that more material comes up. It's for a longer period of time. And... A lot of people that want to do this want to help people. And if you get into trying to help, you're actually going to potentially cause harm because people have the experiences they have. And if you're okay with that, that's what they need at the moment. But if somehow you need them to have less sadness or different experience, it's re-traumatizing because when they were sad when they were younger, it was too much for whoever they were with and they weren't supported. And to experience that again can be harmful. And so unwinding some of that. And for the therapist, it's intense. I mean, it's one thing to do therapy for an hour versus sit somebody for seven hours and they bring up all of these things. Um, So I think there is a real shift in terms of really being self-aware, being aware of your own issues, Mm -hmm. being able to hold that space, being comfortable with the materials that's going to come up because Mm -hmm. you're each time really, you're not quite sure what's going to happen. You know, like this guy that I was speaking to last week, who's a military person, and each time, he's a physician actually in the military, and he's like, each session was totally different yeah. than what he thought it was going to yeah. go in. And you just don't know. Yeah. And so you have to trust that and be able to go with this, the psyche. So I think it's a little different skill set than the general medical of like, doctor knows best, I'm going to prescribe and I'm going to take you down a certain path. Yeah. Yeah. To more you're like a co-person with this, but you're really an important person. Right. right. Do you have a sense, like what's your intuition about the role of the experience and the pharmacology and maybe the, let's say, like the experience itself, the relationships that are sort of formed with therapist and or community, and then the the physiology, the neurobiology. Like, how do you think about parsing out that in assigning it like credit or a percentage of impact or... I'm not sure how to... Yeah, no, I think it's... Well, I think the FDA is struggling with that, too. It's mm-hmm. like, we can approve a drug. How do we approve an experience? Right, right? yeah. This is more than just the drug. And so I actually call it sometimes therapy-assisted by psychedelics rather than yeah. psychedelic-assisted therapy. Yeah. And so I think the relationship is pivotal. I think it's critical. Mm-hmm. Because the relationship allows people to deal with the content that they needed to have. Yeah. And so not having that trust and connection, you'll have this drug effect and this material will come up because I think the drug amplifies and brings up psychic material, but then you actually won't be able to work and do anything with it without it being in a relationship. Mm -hmm. And so I think they're very connected. It's like if you do therapy, I think it works, but Mm -hmm. it can take a really long time and the content is just hidden from you. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you just do psychedelics and you have like all this stuff happen and then like it ends and then you start making meaning of it, but you can't sort of parse it together. And the biology to me is consistent with it. It's just like, because you understand what receptors in the brain that hits and you see on the MRI and then you see the phenomenology of what's happening. It's just all 
part of that. It's all it all it's a continuous kind yeah. of continuum. I mean, man. there's no difference between the mind and the body. It's right. Just, everything that's happening to us is physiologic and it's real. Yeah. Have you seen what would you call it metaphysical belief changes that are significant? You know, in your patient, because I remember a paper from Johns Hopkins yeah. within the last year or two where I think the, I think the compound was DMT, but there was a radical shift in like the level of atheism, you know, a lot of atheists kind of can, you know, I'm yeah, perhaps butchering it, but I'm, I'm, I'm curious, like, cause that strikes me as a challenge for, that's right for the medical, system. for the medical system. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because even can you use the word spirituality or sacred right. yeah. or any of these things? And I'm getting more comfortable with some of that. Like I talk about love yeah. and joy, like these are all human things. Right. And so I've been in, the clinic long enough where we're not going to talk about death anxiety. We're not going to have a dread. And so, you know, your sodium is 135. The cascade shows a two centimeter thing, all the things. And it just doesn't work. It doesn't yeah. work for the patient. It doesn't work for the doctor. And so I think medicine is in a way ripe for like not going to like woo woo, yeah. but also like we're, got, we're more than just these numbers and things. Yeah. And what people want is healing. Yeah. And so, but I think skillfully talking about them in a way that makes sense, that's not like weird, yeah. um, I think is is where we're heading. Yeah. Um, because people want that. Like you I, want I, that. I, I, yeah, I, I, think, I think you're right. I think there is a zeitgeist. Well, if there. you have cancer and you're going to die, yeah. like you want just somebody to talk about the numbers? <laughs> you want, <laughs> like you want to talk about like, why the hell am I here? Right, right. And what's my life about? And I want to experience joy. And I'm yeah. like, all of these things are real. And so if... If you're not going to get it at the doctor, you're going to get it somewhere. Yeah. And the doctor gets burned out. I got burned out not talking about it. That's such a paradox, right? Because the, the thinking is like the burden of the interaction and the paperwork and the the administrative burden is, is what contributes to burnout. Yeah. And you're saying you would like more of the interactive kind of quality that is real and authentic and... Yeah, so now like I run Sunstone and then I also see patients and mm -hmm. I'm like, but now I don't have to give them chemo or do anything else. I can just really have, I was having meaningful conversations before and now yeah. they're like really meaningful. Yeah. <laughs> so I was just like isolated, like well, a philosophy, what I want to talk yeah. to people. And now I'm like, put that on a, and, and then going back to your original question, there is metaphysical basic fundamental changes. And it's not just psychedelics, people experience that. Like if you're mm -hmm. in a car accident mm -hmm. or if you're, Death diagnosis, mm -hmm. cancer diagnosis changes like, mm -hmm. all right, wait a minute. I mean, I've had, I remember I had a patient with testicular cancer and he's cured. And, but afterward he's like, I'm in these meetings, like this job doesn't make sense anymore. Like, yeah. why am I doing this? Yeah. And so that changed his metaphysics. Yeah. And so I think psychedelics give people an opportunity to experience things and mm -hmm. questions. And then where people go with it is different. Mm -hmm. um, but certainly I've seen people bring themselves open to, I'd say, spirituality or these bigger questions, mm -hmm. not because like it intellectually makes sense. It's like on an experiential level, yeah. they're like, yeah. okay, there's a way more going on here than I'm thinking about. Right, <laughs> and maybe right. I don't know everything. Yeah. And like, I mean, people say like, it's great to be wrong about so many yeah. assumptions. Yeah. If I were to ask you what Sunstone looks like in five years, how do you how do you tell that story? What's what's your company looking like in, in yeah, that I mean, period? Yeah, I think our vision is 
It's really about access. You know, our mission has been whole person healing for all, and the all is like everyone, not just wealthy elite on the east and west coast. And so I think for us, it looks like having a network of clinics that shares data and information and provides equitable access to people. And really, we're focused on what are the real tools that are needed to do that? Like, what's the training that's required? What's the yeah. technology? What's the space design? Yeah. All the things that make a center really work and how do those come together to provide an optimal patient experience yeah. and then we'd want a place where people could say you know what i know those guys have integrity i know yeah. they're going to do it the right way and i'll be able to go there and get care beautiful your clinic now is in rockville yeah. maryland then that's just outside of baltimore is that right outside or of washington outside of dc and do you have a sense of where your second location might be so we've had you know Lots of invitations and opportunities. So we're looking at different sites throughout. And this should probably be the U.S. Mm -hmm. of places that we have good partnerships with mm -hmm. people that we can work with, um, also where there's a need. And so I think we're looking to probably open up some sites next year to really learn how to do this exact same way in a yeah. place before we sort of scale, scale it yeah. even bigger. And and would would future sites look like because i think we're just at the beginning of psychedelic clinical trials right yeah, so beginning at like very early stages so it, it's not like these are going to be done anytime yeah. soon right so it seems like there's an interesting model there of clinical research and clinical access you know medical care yeah. sort of is is that how you're thinking about it yeah, i mean i think even oncology like the best clinics are doing clinical doing trials it. because you're getting cutting edge medicines and thinking right. about it. It keeps you that way and it, mm -hmm. it adds a certain rigor as you're talking about. So mm -hmm. I don't so I think all sunstone facilities is delivering care, doing research and training. Mm -hmm. We think those are like our centers of excellence will do all that. Then there'll maybe some smaller places that may just do delivery, but really the core places will do all of that because I think they all feed each other. So yeah. like you know, every time we deliver, we see the therapist can come out and say, I wish I would have known this, which modifies our training. Right, right. And so it's like a It's feedback. a feedback loop. That's right. right. That's interesting. And so we want to share those learnings yeah. and not keep them. And you're presenting uh, here in yeah, Denver? Uh, yep. I'm uh, presenting our data this afternoon, and I'm on a panel this afternoon. Oh, sweet. I was one on yesterday, too. So. Great. Well, Dr. Manish Agarwal, I really appreciate your time. And uh, where can where can folks find you and... Uh, they can go to our website. Uh, sense of therapies and then you can always email me cool well thank you this has been fun appreciate it cool. thanks for listening to the trip report we hope you enjoyed it you can sign up to receive our free newsletter and get the podcast sent directly to your inbox by going to thetripreport.com this podcast is a production from Beckley Waves a psychedelic venture studio if you're interested in learning more about building companies in the psychedelic space, head over to BeckleyWaves.com to get in touch. If you like this episode, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and share it with your friends. I'm Zach Hegney. The Trip Report is produced by Cooler Production Company with coordination from Caitlin Jabari. See you next time.